This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us for an hour of science. And a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I'm well, yes. How are you? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, you know, sunny day. All good? All good. Yep. And uh, probably not sporting any viruses today, Dr. Laura. No, I'm, well, I'm semi-healthy. You're semi-healthy. But I'm super happy. It's a gorgeous day. And <laughs> <laughs> you haven't been on a plane in the last 24 hours? No, it's all good. That's fantastic. Very hey, happy when, to be here. When's your next flight? Next Saturday. Yeah, God. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this year you were going to pull back. It's just a South Africa. It's a just very, very oh, quick, a quick, just very South quick, Africa. South Africa. quick oh joint. A quick joint and then you're back a couple of days yeah, later. Literally three days. It's out of control. Um, <laughs> the life of science. Well, the life of some scientists. Yeah, not, speak not for all. yourself. Yeah. I got to go to Clayton this week. That was pretty, actually, it was excellent uh, and less jet lag. It is far away, though, isn't it? It is very far you away. Know. Yeah. It, yeah. Clayton. Not, yeah. Be nice to Clayton. <laughs> I once got told off for saying that. Oh, it's a great, it's a great campus. It's a lovely place to yeah. be, but it took almost as long as I guess it would take to get to South Africa. I'm joking, joking. <laughs> we we, we love into, you, Monash. Yeah, we better jump into some news before Dr. Linden gets us in trouble. What have you got, madam? Well, Dr. Shane, you know how normally when I talk about uh, climate news, I bring in more depressing climate statistics this yeah, week. Yeah, you do. I've actually got a relatively positive climate story. There was a paper published this week in Nature Climate Change, actually from researchers here in Melbourne, a mm -hmm. group of climate scientists, paleontologists, geologists from the University of Melbourne and the Bureau of Meteorology. And they were confused because... The climate models, future climate projections, are suggesting that in the subtropics in the, of the Southern Hemisphere, where most of us live, sort of 25 to 40 south, mm -hmm. we're seeing a drying trend. We're seeing rainfall decreasing. We're already seeing that in southwestern Western Australia. Remember in South Africa last year, you know, they got really close to day mm. zero with no water. There are some trends as well in Victoria, particularly in the winter, we're getting less rainfall. And, you know, that's scary and worrying. So we're seeing that in the present, we're seeing it in future projections as well. But these guys were like, oh, hang on. But in the past, about three million years ago, temperatures were about three degrees warmer than they are now. Mm -hmm. Carbon dioxide levels were actually about the same as they are now, 400 parts per million. But the paleo record is saying, oh, no, it was wetter. It was wetter in the subtropics. And they're mm. like, that's weird. Why is this past and the future not agreeing with each other? Can, can I ask a question? I yeah. mean, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, mm -hmm. but the Earth's catching up to this temperature change, right? I mean, is this, is this the, the, the core of it? That's exactly right. right. That's the core of it. So what they've done is they looked at future climate projections and they kind of looked at, okay, uh, at the moment, you're right, temperatures are increasing, so we're on a trend. But let's mm. look at now when temperatures are increasing and a few different possible futures where temperatures stabilise at about 2080 or temperatures mm. stabilise at about 20, 20, 2050, mm. 2250. Yep. And... Yeah, that's exactly what they found, that it's not the absolute temperature, it's the transients, it's this, it's the instability of the temperature that's mm. causing this drying. Right. And they, yeah, they found that once the temperatures stabilise, the drying trend kind of tends to back off, tends to slacken a bit, which mm. is, you know, potentially pretty valuable information. Is, is the surface area of water greater once that stabilises as well? Because, you know, as you, as you pull a lot of ice off Antarctica... Mm -hmm and you raise sea level, the land surface area will reduce, which means the amount of exposed water to sunlight will go up, 
which to me says more evaporation, which to me says more rainfall. Oh, well, that particular feedback process was not uh, not addressed in this paper. But, you know, there is the, the warmer the atmosphere is, the more moisture mm, that it can yeah. hold, regardless of how much extra moisture is available. Yeah. Uh, and the Southern Hemisphere, of course, what the pattern they're seeing here is different to the Northern Hemisphere because the Northern Hemisphere's got more land and there's a bit of more yeah. Yeah. Uh, things are behaving in a slightly different way up there. But yeah, down here they've found that when our temperatures are increasing, the tropics are warming faster than our subtropical region and we've got an enhancement of this kind of circulation with hot air rising at the equator and then cooling and sinking, you know, in the subtropics mm. and that's kind of uh, forcing this drying pattern and then once temperatures stabilize this difference in temperature between the equator and the subtropics kind of slackens off which means that things have time to catch up and we mm. this drying trend kind of slows down you know it's it's only one study and rainfall is just like a notoriously nasty bastard to model but <laughs> it, <laughs> that's what i'm taking away from this yeah. okay rainfall is a notoriously nasty bastard to model can we say that i think we can yeah i think we did I think we did, and I stand Liv's, by it. Liv's tweeting it right now. <laughs> but um, it, it is a really valuable information. It's great to see past, present, and future information being yeah. combined in one study. And, I mean, one, it doesn't say this in the paper, but one takeaway message kind of is that the faster we can stabilise the temperatures, then the faster our mm. rainfall trends can kind of stabilise as yeah. well. So a little bit, yeah, a little bit of good bit news. Of good news. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Laura, what have you got? And feel free to use any language you like when describing the science. <laughs> well... One story that hit me, and I took this story quite personally, um, is it's a, it's a researchers from the University of Birmingham um, in the UK, which is where I'm from anyway. Um, but it's all about um, you how... from the UK? Can you not tell? Holy crap. I just thought that was a general did international you just, Did you just accent? want to use yeah. holy crap just to go with the current tone of language now here in Australia? <laughs> oh, apologies, everybody. Just I did not know you from the UK. That's great. <laughs> okay. Um, my, my accent has waned over time. But, um, so what this study showed is that people who naturally stay up late, people who go to bed late and they wake up after sunrise, let's call them night owls. This is what people in public yeah. health call them. Um, they have different patterns of brain activity to morning larks. Damn straight they do. Right. So here's the study. Which one are you? I'm a night owl. Oh, and I felt guilty about it for so long. But what we're going to get to is actually there's quite a proven genetic basis for why, you know, some people do naturally wake up late you know, wake up later. It's not our fault. We're not lazy. Yeah, I, I, it's, I'd, it, I'd be willing to bet a hundred bucks right now that the person who wrote this paper was also a night owl. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But no, no, no. It's actually, this study came up with a lot of bad news for night owls. So of course, okay. our circadian, uh, internal rhythm when we eat, when we go to sleep is all modulated by our circadian clock, right? But um, this, um, this study, it took 38 people who were self-designated morning larks or night owls, but also there were lots of tests that the researchers did on them to confirm this. And they subjected all these people to lots of baseline MRIs monitoring their brain activity, also subjecting them to various um, cognitive tests and testing various abilities at either 8am or 8pm. And what they found is that the morning larks did better at 8am, no surprise, mm -hmm. but at 8pm the morning larks and the night owls did exactly the same. Interesting. Now, of course, the caveat that you come straight to is let's get those morning larks doing something at 1am. Let's mm -hmm. see how they right. go. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but um, so what they actually found is that when they did MRIs at resting state is that there was lower brain activity in the, in the night owls. Now, some of the implications here is that, is that people who, des who generally tend to wake up later might be disadvantaged at a nine to five job. So they're, so 
what this study really brought to light is that these people who are biologically hardwired to working up later, they've got a permanent state of social jet lag. So really, when should we, you know, should we have more flexible hours to, so people can have better performance? Now, people who are morning people who are feeling super, really superior and, you know, saying, well, these people are just lazy. There have been so <laughs> many studies showing that actually waking up later is genetically inherited. There was a huge paper just 18 months ago in Cell, pretty much the biggest sort of, you know, highest impact journal out there, um, showing that there was a gene that's inherited in families and is prevalent, a mutation is prevalent in people who tend to wake up later. Mm. And there's a, there's a slurry of studies coming out saying that actually things are not good for night owls. There's um, predisposition disposition to diabetes, yeah. early death. I remember that. Dr. Catherine talked about that last mm. year. I think yeah, it's yeah. pretty scary There's stuff. a lot of negativities um, sort of associated with waking up later. And what this could be down to is the fact that these people are have a misaligned circadian rhythm. And because of the social norm, they're permanently fighting against what they're hardwired to yeah. do yeah. because of social norm. I mean, people who want to wake up later, they, they can still wake up earlier. And, you know, you can do things like, okay, I'm not going to look at my phone late at night and I'm going to mm. look at light, you know, earlier in in the morning, but some people do just find it really difficult to drag themselves out of bed, no matter how good they are. Some people just jump out of bed, some people find it hard, and it all could be due down to our genetics mm. and our circadian rhythm. Is there some kind of distribution of um, cultures or ages or genders that, some, that show night owls are more likely to be male or from different cultures and that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's really interesting and a great point. I'm sure epidemiologists are looking mm. at this, but yeah, mm. I'm, I'm not sure of the data. But um, certainly the gene mutations that do predispose you to this is inherited in families. Well, I think before we cast any judgment on you, Dr. Laura, <laughs> we will check for this gene. And if you don't have it, the well, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we know genetics. It's very complex, Dr. Shane. There are probably lots of different genes that have overlapping functions, so uh, let's go. not rule me out. <laughs> In your case, I think it's just jet lag. You're always on a plane. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, hopefully on the phone, we have Dr. Moria Montez. Dr. Moria, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Now, you're, tell me, which department at the University of New South Wales are you from? Uh, we're in the School of Physics in the University of New South Wales, uh, but um, we are in the Astro Group. Excellent. Now, you've been doing some very interesting work recently uh, looking at dark matter. Now, for my non-physics colleagues in the room, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of the ideas behind dark matter and why we need them? Because we haven't actually put it in the jar and worked out what it is yet, have we? Uh, no, actually, uh, my work is um, basically focused on understanding, you know, what is this uh, dark matter. So basically, uh, what we've uh, tried to do is um, basically, you know, like the, the most of the of the mass in the universe is in this form of uh, dark matter, in this very mysterious form. So basically, what we've done is um, finding a way to kind of see, let's say, see uh, this dark matter in in clusters of galaxies. So most of um, as well as in the universe, in, in clusters of galaxies, most of the mass is in, in this dark matter. So, um, so we use uh, something that is um, called intracluster light, that is a very faint light that's in, in these uh, clusters of galaxies, to map the distribution of dark matter in these clusters of galaxies. Mm. Uh, can, can I ask, why is it that we can't, uh, we can't see it directly? Can you tell us a bit about its properties? Like, how is it different to normal matter? So basically, we don't know the nature of this uh, dark matter, but uh, we know that it doesn't um, emit any light in any um, wavelength. That's, um, 
that we've measured, but we know that it's there because how it interacts with the matter that we see, you know, with the mm. what we call baryonic matter, with the stars and and you know, like all the the other matter that we can see. Mm. And traditionally, we use my understanding is we use gravitational lensing to to work out where it is. Is that right? So we watch we watch its effects gravitationally rather than what we would see. Yeah, exactly. Um, normally, uh, to do this kind of work, to, to trace where the uh, dark matter is in, in of galaxies, you, we use uh, what is called this gravitational lensing, that basically it's uh, using this property that um, mass has, that is bending the light of uh, ob- objects that are behind these, um, you know, these uh, basically uh, big um, clumps of mass. And, you know, for example, uh, galaxy clusters, what they, they do, is, you know, you are observing like a background, you know, like a galaxy that is behind the cluster, and the light gets distorted, so the Mm. shape of the object gets distorted, and it appears brighter, and you can see it. Mm. While, you know, like, normally we you won't see that that object. Mm. And, you know, using this, you know, this distortion and this, all this... um, um, what we call multiple multiple images from these um, you know galaxies that are behind the cluster, we can um, we can infer you know like this the, this distribution of, of mass or the total mass of the cluster. Yeah. Now you're you're using this slightly different technique, which uses something as yeah. you mentioned before called intracluster light. Now this is a new term for me. I haven't heard this. What what exactly <laughs> is what's intracluster light coming from? So. Um, so this is a very diffuse light that are um, that you, you can see in well yeah that is difficult to see but you can see in in clusters of galaxies. So basically, uh, clusters of galaxies um, uh, we have a very high density of of galaxies and mm-hmm. they tend to interact in, uh, with each other. So the stars that are in these galaxies that interact they um, they are thrown away from their from their galaxies mm-hmm. where they, they are and they end up floating around in the cluster. So they don't, do not belong to any galaxy, but uh, you know they basically follow the gravity of the of the cluster. Oh, so they're just rogue rogue stars that kind of they're they're in yeah, they're exactly. in the the sort of galactic milkshake of all the galaxies, but they're not in any one of them in particular. Exactly. Hmm. So they are just floating around. Yeah. Oh, okay, and, and and this how is this light sort of special and different? Is it is it just that it's because it's not part of the individual galaxies? You can use it differently. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the point is that uh, because it follows the, the gravity of the cluster, mm. of the whole cluster, it's actually, you know, um, it's basically um, they um, basically they are just in the, in the parts of the cluster where dark matter uh, dominates. Mm. Okay. It's not the center of the galaxy. So therefore, um, you, can, you can basically trace much better this distribution of, of dark matter. Uh, it's Dr. Linden here. So how do you go about looking for this kind of this lonely star light? Surely you must have to be looking pretty far out. Uh, basically, um, the, 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 well, um, the thing that um, we do is, yes, uh, going um, as, far as, as far as we can from the centre of the galaxies and also go like very deep. We need uh, very deep images, so lots of uh, time, you know, special time. So we can actually see this light because it's very faint. That is the, you know, like the, mm. let's say, like the only problem that this uh, um, that this work has. Mm. Maria, um, I'm I'm curious as to, and I'm worried that we might give some people a headache when we get the answer to this. But when you talk about a cluster of galaxies, how many yeah. galaxies 
are you talking about? And consequently, how many stars in total would be in one of these clusters, approximately? Um, so the, um, the definition of cluster of galaxies is a, it's a, um, it's not very well defined. So it can be like hundreds or thousands of galaxies. Wow. So de- depending, you know, how massive it, the cluster is. So there are like, like for example, the, the clusters I study. Uh, in this work, they are like the, one of the most massive clusters in the in the universe. So there's like um, so there's like a, oof, um, bill, um, let's say it's like uh, thousands of billions of stars, like the sun. Yeah, yeah, just like lots, lots of stars. Yeah, that's a lot. Um, now, in yeah. terms of so, so what does this mean in terms of our understanding of dark matter? Like, you've got this new technique now that allows you yeah. to to map in a different way uh, where, where the dark matter is located. I mean, what what does that mean for our understanding of dark matter? So um, the thing is that with um, this technique, uh, we can um, map the dark matter more efficiently than with gravitational lensing. Yep. So with uh, gravitational lensing, we need deep images because we we need to identify these uh, you know uh, galaxies those galaxies that are behind the clusters. And also we need to know, you know, uh, the distance to, to these galaxies. Mm. So that means that we need a spectroscopy to, you know, to be able to see, you know, like the distance of these galaxies. So with this technique, we only need uh, very deep imaging. So, you know, like um, basically integrate um, lots of time just um, staring at a cluster. And basically that make, uh, makes it uh, more efficient. Mm. And then we can, you know, like uh, if um, it's more efficient, we can study uh, more clusters and, and, you know, like um, basically uh, study clusters in a more statistically way, Mm. statistical way. And therefore we can um, infer, you know, like the properties of this star matter. Well, look, it, it's fascinating stuff, and it's great to see this happening here in Australia. I mean, we, we are definitely pioneers of astronomy in, in Australia. There's no doubt about that. We've seen that a lot. Yeah. It's um, it's great talking to you. Good luck with this ongoing work. I mean, the dark matter story is one that's still evolving in a major way, so it'll be, it'll be really oh, yeah. uh, impressive when we work out what the majority of the mass in the universe actually <laughs> is one day. It's disturbing. I, I always find that when we talk to non-physics people and they say, you know, we have to tell them that we don't know what most of it is, it's, <laughs> it's, know, it's, it sounds like we're a little bit behind um, thanks so much for chatting to us today and good luck with the ongoing work. Thank you. Thank you very much for calling me. No problem at all. Dr. Maria Montes is from the University of uh, New South Wales in the School of Physics up there. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're having a bit of a laugh here in the studio because uh, it's a nice day and everyone's talking about doing exercise, but no one's actually doing any because we're just sitting around. I'm eating cake. You're eating cake. <laughs> Dr. Laura's saying she's going to go for a run. I'm we'll about to. Happens. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, now, hopefully on the phone, we have Claudia Pickering, the director of Resting Pitch Face. Claudia, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. How's it going? Great. Look, it's great to. to I saw I saw uh, the the promo stuff for your indie si- series um, coming out um, soon. We'll, we'll talk about when and so forth. Uh, and I, I thought, given the colleagues I have in the studio, we just had to talk to you. Give us a bit of a rundown of what you've put together because it's based partly on true stories, and I think it's something that many of our listeners will have a, a strong affection for. It is. It, so it is a show about women in STEM. It's a, it's a comedy web series. Um, three different women, one working in uh, as a biomed engineer, one as a computer dev, and like, who does a bunch of coding. 
and one who is a textiles engineer. So it's like right across the board of STEM and it's just there like every day. We're trying to encourage people to get involved with the with, with like the STEM world and like women to enter the workforce there. But we're doing it with a bit of comedy. So there's some really great comedic talents involved. We've got Bridie Connell, who was on Tonightly and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, Nakia Louie, who you might know from Black Comedy mm-hmm. and who's been doing some really great things in theatre lately. And Emily Javier, who is an incredible comedic talent. So it's basically these three chicks who live together and they've banded together in their, even though they're from like different parts of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, math. Yep. And they are entering what's called um, hack match to try and bring their idea like to the world and you know change the world. Um, but if you've ever seen anything like um, Silicon Valley on HBO, um, oh yeah. It's kind of in that vein. So it's really outrageous and it's like just the life of being a chick in a male-dominated workplace. Um, I'm going to hand over to my two <laughs> colleagues because they can, they can ask better questions than I can. <laughs> this sounds like an excellent web series. I can't wait to see it. I wonder, like, have you said it in the present? Have you said it in the present day? Yeah. You said it sort of in a few years ago. This women in STEM kind of powerhouse is, means that cultures are, in some areas are changing very rapidly. So are you addressing that at all, sort of the tokenisms or the lack of effort that is happening in some places? There's definitely, like, we're sort of, like, getting a look at, because it's three different workplaces we're looking at, you do get sort of a fairly even-handed idea of the way these women are being treated. There's one of them who just, like, straight up just cannot deal with their job, and her boss is actually a woman, and she's just, like, just actually ends up walking out on her job. And there's another another woman who's just, like, completely getting berated by these douchebags in her office who are these absolute tech bros who have no idea how to code, really, from what I can tell. And, um, but then she's got this incredible male boss who really champions her. So she's kind of getting two sides of the coin. And then we've got this biomed engineer, Sam, who... It's like they just don't actually know how to. They're not. They're, they don't know how to interact with women. Like the, the guys who she's gone to work with, she's like just out of this job, and they're like, "Oh no, we've had we've had a woman here once. What happened to her?" Oh, and you know they've got kind of just no idea, and they're like kind of in love with her, and and it's all of that. And she's just like, "Can I just be treated professionally, please?" Dr. Laura um, is freaking out that you've actually yeah. written about her life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that character's based yeah. on you. How much is this based on true stories, Claudia? So all of it has come from so Grumpy Sailor are the production company. And the two writers, uh, Nicola Parry, who you might know from Thank God You're Here, and Jess Harris, mm. who did 20-something, um, which was such a great show. Um, anyway, they went and chatted to everything at every single turn because this was all inspired by, it's like a direct response to the news stories around gender, gender imbalance in STEM. They went to all these different workplaces um, and interviewed all these different women and got all of their different stories. So all of these things have been checked. All of the things that happen in the show have been checked and, and, and are based on things that, that, that have directly come from these stories that the writers then um, put into, you know, a narrative form. So, yeah, it's all real. <laughs> Claudia, uh, Dr. Laura here. I'm a biomedical scientist. I absolutely, I absolutely love this. I watched your promo. <laughs> and um, so the true stories that you got, is this from Australian institutions? 
Yes. So they're from all over Australia. It was, I, I believe they weren't international. They were all over Australia, from like small scale STEM companies to massive tech companies, like a whole gamut. I love this. I love the fact that you're calling out this really, truly outdated behavior, which is so present. But, you know, the sort of mentality is really changing that people are really, you know, calling out, you know, these old school tales of, you know, scientists being men in white coats. And, you know, there there are a lot of women in STEM. And I think, you know, kind of putting, you know, that back into the limelight is just really fantastic. I love it. The fact that you've just said that men in white coats thing, there's a scene that you're going to absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Claudia, if you could imagine, well, I don't think you imagine, I think it probably will happen, that this just goes gangbusters. How, like, what are you hoping to achieve? If you could say, this is what I want this work to do, what would you well, measure as nailed it? Because we've, we've depicted the women in this as, like, badass chicks, right? And so... The whole point of this, although we are sort of unpacking this whole thing of this massive gender imbalance, the whole point is we're trying to encourage people to go and get involved with a STEM career. They're, you know, I've got a brother who's 18 years old and going to university, like about to go to uni, and I'm like, oh, you know, they're at this point where they could just... And, you know, people have these, like, career change moments where it's like what, women don't even consider this part. So, I mean, ideally, like in the whole idealistic world that I... You know, we've all been living in, with, you know, the hopes for this show. That's what we actually want mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the real capital R reason for, like, why, we, why we're doing this. And presumably I mean, you would want men to watch this show as well, right? And think, oh, yeah. ooh, and I was check, doing that. That's not cool. Themselves. Check themselves. Yeah. And also it's funny. So it's like it's not the sort of thing where you'd be like, it's not, like, on a soapbox you know, making people feel awful about themselves. It's just, it's like, it's just a bit, it's a bit of funny comedy of anything where you might actually learn something and maybe, you know, check yourself if you're a dude in one of those situations. And the other thing is we want to make more episodes. So there's three apps we've already made. And like the little baby R reason is that we want to make more. So, yeah. Well, yeah, there are plenty of cringeworthy stories out there. Yeah, you, you could you could probably make another three episodes just from Dr. Laura's stories from what we could, we what she's told me. Infinity, like full on, <laughs> like into infinity with these stories. Unfortunately, yeah, it's sad that that's the case. Now, Claudia, before we let you go, give us the give us the spool on where people will find it and and so forth. Uh, okay, so it will be available online if you check out. I, I believe it's just going to be on YouTube for everyone to access. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to get it as far and wide as possible, so we don't want to limit anybody's access to it. Um, I believe it will be on the Grumpy Sailor um, YouTube channel. Okay. But if you just Google Resting Pitch Face, you'll be able to find the trailer, and then from there you'll be able to get all the links to all the apps. Fantastic. Well, Claudia, thanks so much for chatting to us. Good luck with it. It sounds like something that will go right off and um, hopefully, you know, sends a good message but also keeps people laughing at the same time. So uh, best of luck and we hope to see many more episodes, maybe some based on Dr. Laura. Yes, definitely. (laughs) We'll be calling. (laughs) Great. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Cheers, guys. Bye was Claudia Pickering, who's the director of Resting Pitchface. So uh, it'll be something to have a look at, I suspect. And uh, 
you two can watch and be disturbed by how true half of it is. I <laughs> oh, it's, it's good to hear these stories and these, yeah. you know, lifestyles happening to be seen by other people. But just one point to the listener, Claudia's absolutely right. There are so many badass women in science. Mm. Like, mm. I know so many of them. It's so great to be encouraging women to enter STEM and yeah. having these role models to look up to. So Absolutely. We've got a bucket load of them here on the show. You're the ones I... Happy to have sitting alongside me. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. In the studio with us now is Dr. Catherine Snow. She's a public health researcher from the University of Melbourne. Catherine, welcome to Triple R, or I should say welcome back to Triple R. Hey, thank you. It's been a few years since you were in. It has, yeah. I think it was sort of three or four years ago. And I think we were we talking about tuberculosis back uh, then? We were talking about hep C, I hep think, C, and what, yeah. what then were the new hep C drugs. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So we're gonna, we've got like a pound of uh, topics we can cover here, but I wanted to start on one that uh, was interesting. You and I were exchanging some emails late in the week and this sort of came up, but it's the, the issue of safety around drug use in our local festivals, music festivals and so forth, and the fact that there is, you know, we've seen just recently over summer uh, a number of deaths uh, as a result of, of this problem. Mm. I mean, What's what's the sort of public health view of this? I mean, how do you go about dealing with this? Yeah, so um, there's been a big debate um, caused particularly by these recent events and recent hospitalizations and deaths at festivals and at other some at clubs and other sort of dance uh, events related to unsafe drugs mm. um, and particularly related to people taking drugs that turned out not to be what they thought they were taking. Right. Uh, and so a big part of the public health response and advocacy from the community as well has been around um, introducing something called pill testing mm. um, to help people find out in advance what they might be taking and whether there are risks. So be- before we get into the details of why we might do that, c- can I ask first, with the, you mentioned not necessarily taking the drugs they think they were taking. If they were the drugs they think they were taking, are they dangerous as well or are they just at the light end where there isn't a concern? Um, So the drug that people usually think they're taking is a drug called MDMA, Mm -hmm. which certainly can be dangerous. It is possible to overdose on it, um, particularly if people uh, end up taking higher doses than they intend to take or realise that they're going to take. So it's it's certainly not a completely safe drug. Um, But MDMA overdoses are relatively rare. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's sort of, it's a bit in the middle. It's not a completely safe drug, but it's not a massively, massively dangerous drug. And and again, just before we get on to the the drug testing, because I want to sort of iron some of these things out, how does the danger of these drugs compare to the, what I would personally think would be the larger danger of just alcohol use? (laughs) That's a very, very good question. It's difficult to sort of compare them directly um, because alcohol use is so much more common. Mm. So because alcohol use is really common in Australia, a lot of people end up with serious health problems right. and, and acute poisoning as well yep. from alcohol yep. just because so many people use alcohol, um, whereas many fewer people use MDMA. So that's part of the reason that the events are, are less common. But I think also more generally, yeah, I mean, alcohol is not a safe drug and alcohol is different to some drugs as well in that like any amount of it is actually bad for you. Mm. Um, which is not necessarily the case with a lot of other um, drugs. So, and we tend to have, uh, we tend to be a lot more blasé about alcohol. So it's hard to directly compare the, you know, is X drug more dangerous than drug Y? But we certainly as a community 
are a bit more blasé around the harms of alcohol than yeah. we are about the harms of illicit drugs. We tend to react a lot more strongly to a small number of illicit drug deaths, mm. but we're very blasé about the very high number of alcohol deaths that happen yeah. every year in Australia. Yeah. All right, we might come back to alcohol because that's an interesting one for me. Let's talk about the pill testing, though. I mean, what, what would that look like? Because this is something where our law enforcement agencies and so forth want this stuff to not be there at all. Yeah. So how do, you, how do you go about introducing something like pill testing for safety when, mm. you know, the, the nearby, you know, very well-meaning police police force want to stop this entirely. Yeah, so, I mean, that has been a big issue with pill testing is exactly, yeah, that, exactly that issue. How would it be implemented and how do you, um, you know, sort of get police on board? Because you need support from law enforcement. Mm. You know, you can't, like, they've got a job to do. There are community expectations that they will do their jobs. And so there is a tension there and you do need to, to deal with that. Um, having said that, we do have examples. I mean, there was a trial of pill testing at a festival last year in the ACT that was quite successful. Mm -hmm. um, and we also have examples from other health programs. Like, for example, we have a very um, successful program of distributing clean injecting equipment for people who inject heroin um, and other drugs in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and that's despite heroin possession being illegal and police um, enforcing that. So there are models where that can work, but yeah, it does, it requires constructive engagement with police and getting police on board. Mm. And what does the pill testing entail? Do I have to buy two so I can give one to you? That, I mean, <laughs> no. I mean, I'm just thinking chemically, what that is would this? Be, that would be expensive. Yeah, um, what does that mean? What does it mean to do no. this? No, so what people do um, is that they attend, so often at these festivals, there's like a, you know, like a first aid tent, yep. Yep. you know, like a medical tent. Um, so the way it worked in the, um, the ACT trial was that um, connected to the medical tent was a pill testing tent um, with a common entrance. So it wasn't obvious who was coming in um, for what purpose. Right. So people had a bit of privacy um, and the staff scrape a little bit off the pill um, and put that into a, a machine. There's a few different types of machines you can use and that analyzes it to see what it is and whether it matches sort of like a database of known drugs. Mm. Um, and, then they, and then they can tell them, okay, this is MDMA, which is what you thought it was, or it's this other drug, or we don't know what it is. Yeah. So that'd, be careful. That'd be a worry. And yeah. Catherine, you did this trial recently. Um, so how did you advertise that to festival goers of, you know, you can come and test your pills here? And how many sort of people did you get into the tent to come and do um, that? So it wasn't me. I wasn't, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I wasn't the community. Yeah, I wasn't involved, but the, the people organising the trial. So um, I don't think they actually were able to promote it very um, widely because there was a bit of, yeah, the, it was, I think it was confirmed very much at the last minute as well. There was a lot of back and forth about was it going to be allowed to go ahead? And then it was only a few days before the festival that they got final confirmation. Um, so I, yeah, I don't think they were able actually to advertise it as much as they would have liked to. So well, yeah, I think it's a lot of word, of word mm. of mouth, but you, you could, right? I mean, in the same way that we, you know, make it known that some pharmacies distribute clean needles, some pharmacies distribute mm -hmm. methadone, you know, you could do the same thing. You could say pill, pill testing is available at this festival, like go to the first aid tent if you want, you know, if you want to pill test it. So it would be possible. And do you know what the, the sort of buy-in is or the feedback from the festival goers about the tent? Yeah, so I think for the ACT trial there was, um, I think it was 80-something 80, 80 people did use come and use the service and had drugs tested. Um, and because it was sort of a trial... Uh, they had those people sort of fill out like a little questionnaire um, and they asked them what they thought they were taking and then when they discussed the test results, they said, okay, is that what you're expecting? Are you surprised? Um, are you going to take the drugs or are you going to get rid of them? Um, obviously a bit of a sensitive question. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and then there's, yeah, there's a big report uh, that's publicly available online for anyone who's interested in to sort of read in detail about the results. 
And this is just a follow-up question. Thinking about the trust that you would have to have between the festival goer mm. and the people providing that service, do you know how they branded that? Did they say, oh, this is a university thing, it's just scientists are helping you do this, or this is a health-based thing? Um, so they actually used, they used healthcare uh, professionals, but they also used peers as well, um, and that's a really big thing for illicit um, drug user services for to build that trust is to actually have people who use drugs um, who are, yeah, the same, like, age group and demographic as the, the mm-hmm. users of the service, which is much less intimidating than having, like, a 60-year-old medical professor, mm-hmm. right, well, who yeah. you don't have as much in common with. Yeah. If not, I was wondering if there would be a lot of a, this is a pill for my friend. That yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not for me. Yeah, well, it's, it sounded, actually, it was interesting reading the report. It sounds like what happened a lot was, like, a group of people would come in with uphill so that it wasn't clear, yeah. is it Who yours, it is it his? Mm. Um, probably what happens more commonly is that actually everyone's got the same ones um, and they're bringing one sample to get tested and then they all right. know, because you'd often buy several from the Off same the person, supply, right, yeah. and then you'd know. Hmm. And then what, do you know what the percentages were of which drugs, how many drugs were what they said they were and how many were kind of talc? Yes. Yeah, or dangerous. Some, some were talc. Um, there was some... One of them um, contained toothpaste, which I thought was a very interesting substitute. Um, One was a hay fever um, tablet. Um, So I think it was about sort of half of them showed um, high levels of the drug that they thought it was. So, like, not just Mm. a bit of MDMA, but, yep, that's a good match for MDMA. Um, A lot of them were sort of a mix of a few different things in not very high levels, so it was a bit harder to say. It's like, oh, yeah, look, it's got some MDMA in it, but it's also got a bunch of talc and and, and maybe something else as well. And, yeah, a couple of pills did turn out to have quite dangerous chemicals in them. So this this is where... Sorry, I have a million questions here, but what's the healthcare provider's obligation at that point if they test one of these pills and it's seen as something that will literally kill a person? Yeah, so there's... I mean, it's often difficult because it also depends on dose and anything else. But yeah, they they make it very clear. So they had a sort of um, like a coding system where it was like white, like a white result is, yep, it's what you think it is. A yellow result is like, oh, it's, you know, it's got something else in it that we're not sure about. Or, you know, it's got something that's not what you think it is, but it's not, we don't think it's super dangerous. And then a red result was, no, this contains something very dangerous. Like Mm. you should not take this. And they would really strongly advise them to get rid of it and get rid of any that they had anywhere else. Yeah. And there was obviously a few of those Detected. There was a couple of those, yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a good catch. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I wonder what the legal ramifications could be as well. Say you got a white result, but you had never taken MDMA before. You were also drinking a lot of alcohol, yeah. and then something awful happened. Yeah. They must have had to consider that too, right? Yeah, that's it's really important, and that's been a lot of the concern. Uh, around pill testing is, yeah, what if we give people a false sense of security? So that's partly why they have medical professionals and scientists doing these tests and having a conversation um, so that they can have that conversation and say, hey, like, these tests aren't perfect. Like, we're not telling you that this is definitely 100% safe. We're just telling you that you thought it was MDMA and it has MDMA in it, Mm -hmm. you know. But, yeah, it's very important that people have that face-to-face discussion so they can still talk about the risks rather than just getting, yeah, a big tick and, oh, yeah, it's all fine. So do you know, Catherine, what plans are moving forward? Do you think this trial went well enough that other festivals are going to try and roll it out or is it a bit of a pushback? There's been, yeah, so there's been a lot of pushback, unfortunately. Um, it's been very, very divisive. And, yeah, there's been a lot of pushback from people in authority just saying, like, yeah, we, we don't want to give people the impression that these drugs are safe. These drugs mm. just aren't safe. People just shouldn't be taking them, you know. So, like, a really black and white zero tolerance kind of just say no approach, which 
doesn't have a good track record in so, public health. Mm-hmm. Very, that approach very rarely actually has good results. So, so um, I'm curious there in terms of where the data sits with regards to some of these drugs. I mean, we're seeing this across the world at the moment with the use of medical marijuana and so yep. forth and all of us. You know, and the stigma around that is very strong mm. and its introduction, though, in, in certain regards is very controlled. Yeah. With, with these drugs, I can imagine, so if we sort of just step back out from it, we've done, talked a bit about the testing, but there's a scenario where I suppose... I'm just guessing the one of the arguments would be that the testing promotes the use yeah. and that has bad health outcomes. Yeah. Whereas the counterpoint to that is, well, controlled use is actually not dangerous. Where do you sit in terms yeah. of public? Like if I was to, I want the least number of people to die in a given year, which lane do I pick and why? Yeah. So it's, I think it's very difficult. So because because these issues are so political, it's often very difficult to do the research, mm. right? It's often right. very difficult to get, I mean, to get that trial off the ground took a huge amount of work and advocacy from a huge amount of people. And it still wasn't funded by the government, actually. Right. So they sort of allowed it to happen, yep. but they didn't support it. You know, mm. um, and so yeah, that, that's the first problem is that often getting the the evidence is difficult because it's very hard to do the research because these issues are so political and so divisive. In terms of um, like what outcome you want, as well as being linked to the evidence, that's also like a really philosophical question. Um, so coming from like the harm reduction perspective, um, it's also about it's like what comparison do you choose to make? Are you comparing sort of a hypothetical world where no one takes drugs? Mm to the pill testing world. Right, yeah. Or are you saying, well, people are going to take drugs, so the the real choice is untested pills versus tested pills, and I would come down on tested pills. Right. Right, but other people stick to that. Well, we just want no one to use drugs, and that's what we should, all we should, we should be aiming for. Yeah. I'm going to give you 10 seconds to catch your breath while we just play <laughs> a, a, something very short, and we'll be right back, folks. Einstein a go-go, I got, I got to be a part of that. Don't grow accustomed to it. Be proud and surprised by it every day. <laughs> I wasn't joking about the 10 seconds. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was actually 13. Um, let, let's just um, change gear for a second and talk a little bit about alcohol because I think mm-hmm. this is something where, you know, the data is presumably a lot more abundant on yeah. alcohol use compared to something like some of these illicit yeah. drugs, which are relatively minor. And yet, you know, alcohol is, is freely promoted. I mean, is, is alcohol mm-hmm. today's tobacco? Is that is that... Yeah, I think a lot of people would say that. And I think um, it's always surprising to me, yeah, how little people realise about um, the harms of alcohol and sort of what, we, what we're making people more aware of and what we're not. Like there's been a lot of discussion in Australia over the past few years about binge drinking and the mm. dangers of binge drinking, which is certainly very understandable. What there's been less discussion about, though, is that even, you know, someone who has a glass of wine every night with dinner, that's way above what they should be drinking from a health perspective. So, oh, dear. You know, yeah, I've got bad news, everyone. Well, then how do you... That must make you mad then when you see those studies that get pub, like that get picked up by the media a few times a year. Yeah. Oh, a glass of red wine is good for yeah. your X, yeah. lengthens your life X number of months or whatever. Yeah. That must really piss you off. It's, yeah, I find it frustrating. and that's But it's also like that's what people want to hear because alcohol use is normalised, right, and everyone uses alcohol. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if you had a, a study like that came out about an illicit drug, the mm. media would go nuts. Absolutely. People would be outraged. How can you say that that's good for you? How can you say that that's safe? But, yeah, when we have a study that says, well, oh, yeah, it's good for your, you know, memory to drink red wine, you know, whatever nonsense. Yeah. Like, um, And, yeah, just there are just 
very well-known harms of alcohol in the scientific community that just don't seem to have made it through, like the fact that alcohol is strongly associated with a number of cancers. Mm, yeah. Most people just don't realise that. And that's not like a bottle of vodka a day, you know. You don't have to be drinking that much. Well, I think there's a difference between you know, the, yeah. use of, the use of alcohol to the point where your liver stops functioning, yeah. which is, you know, which is the, the, the yeah. heavy end of the... I mean, that, that's obviously something yeah, that people are very aware, aware of. of. Um, but the the daily dose stuff is, yeah. in fact, I think, Lyndon, you're right. I mean, the, the the broad promotion at the moment is that this is actually good that for it you. Be good it's for not you, even yeah. that it could be bad for you. It's that it's likely this is good yeah. for you, so you should do it. No. So what should you do? Well, I mean, again, this is a, that's a philosophical question, right? Oh, yes. Mm. Because it's not just a health question, is it? Like, people enjoy alcohol. People find, especially people who are, like, a bit nervous or uncomfortable in social situations, they get benefits from drinking alcohol. They feel relaxed. They can enjoy themselves. Yeah. I'm a big, like, craft beer drinker. I like the taste. I know it's not good for me, yep. you know, but cake's not good for me either, and I right. eat cake, you know, so it's... For me, it's about moderation, and it's a, but, it, but it's important to know the harms and mm. know the risks so that you can make an informed decision about how much do I want to drink, do I want to not drink at all, you know, and family history is important for that as well. It, and, and this is where, where I find um, often the science fails, the community. Yeah. And, and I think I've, I've spoken to Dr Laura about this before where I've said, you know, she takes a lot of international travel, right? Mm. And she gets a certain radiation dose. Yeah. And, and, I can, and I can compare that to her getting mm. a chest X-ray or a hand X-ray or spending half an hour having a picnic at Chernobyl. Yeah. And we can give literal comparisons yeah, there that, that can tell you exactly what yeah. the relative risk is. Yeah. In terms of alcohol, sugar, mm. you know, illicit drugs, it's very, you know, mm. often, and we see some of these papers, you know, where you've got a 0.3% greater chance of getting this cancer as a result. And it's like, 0.3, I don't care. Yeah. Um, I've got a bigger chance of having a car accident. I mean, mm. it's hard for people, I think, to get their head around sometimes what relative risk is. Yeah, and I think these studies are very difficult in general because you're studying, like, you can't do a randomised controlled trial on a glass of wine with dinner every night for 50 years. Right. You can't, yeah. right? And, yeah, I mean, these studies that suggest that alcohol's helpful, the suspicion is that actually what it is is that the kind of people who drink mm. a glass of wine every night are middle-class people with good access to healthcare who exercise, you know, so on and so forth, whereas a lot of people who don't drink at all don't drink for health reasons, yep. right? So they've got pre-existing health problems. And that's the same with diet, it's the same with exercise, it's actually really difficult to tease out the specific, um, you know, effect of the alcohol or the drugs from other things. Yeah. And it's also difficult to, like, get good at information on the dose. Mm. Like, I'm sort of an irregular drinker. So if a researcher asked me, how many drinks do you have a week? Well, sometimes it's none and sometimes it's five. And so I couldn't give you accurate information yeah. and that makes it very hard to do high-quality research as yeah. well. Is it unlikely that people give you accurate information anyway? Because there is a bit of a, a yeah. guilt stigma around that, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. People usually under-report their alcohol yeah. use. So you just double, double everything. Yeah. <laughs> so then are you heartened by, I've heard statistics saying that uh, younger people are drinking less. Are you mm. heartened or do you not believe it? Oh, no, I think it's probably true because I think everyone probably lies about the same amount. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I, I think, I th and especially like a lot of young people aren't drinking at all, right, which I think, which is sort of people are less likely to lie about, I think. Like people who mm. drink might say they drink a bit less, but if someone says, no, I don't drink at all, they probably really don't drink at all or they probably drink very, very, very little. So, yeah, I think it is really very encouraging. Mm. But I suppose that also talks to why are people not drinking at all Surely they're not as across the science as you are. They're not drinking at all for maybe other social reasons mm. that could be positive or negative. They're feeling a lot of social pressure. They're very stressed about separate things. 
that's a hard equation to balance, right? If it's positive or negative at the end. It is, but I I don't know. I think my, I'm not young anymore, but I I feel like um, people are getting a bit more aware of like the unpleasant social effects of like, not not alcohol, but like drunkenness, right? Mm. And that's something that young people will say, often if you interview them, say, why don't you drink? They're like, well, it's not like being around drunk people is unpleasant. Right, mm. and that's what's putting them off. So it's not that they're yet yeah, reading studies about cancer; it's that they're seeing that actually heavy alcohol use isn't, yeah, yeah isn't great. You know, yeah. Catherine, it's great having you in to talk about. It. We could we could probably talk for another hour on this, and I know in particular with my two colleagues in the room because you know Laura is in the area of immunology, so you know immunisations and so forth have similar issues around how science is, is being mm. communicated out to the public. And Lynn, of course, being a climatologist, has you know. The, the same, you know, this this issue of we were we were talking about how it's the science itself that now the process that's under mm. attack, not even the specific area of science, but it's mm. just you know, oh, you keep changing your mind. How can we trust you? It's one like, study uh, says this, one study that says is, that. That's how yeah. science works, people. Yeah. Um, so look, it's it's great that people like yourself are looking into this because if we could just focus some of our policy decisions on the data, I think we'd be living mm. in a much better world. But on the risk, it's on it's on the risk yeah. assessment, right? Yeah. You don't need a hard and fast answer. You no. need the risk yeah. assessment. Is this yeah. so? Thank you so much for coming in. Um, we'll hopefully get you in a, again at some stage because there's so much of your other your actual work that we, we didn't even get to talk sure. about. So uh, <laughs> we'll do that again at some stage, but uh, it was a pleasure having you in the studio. Thank you. Dr. Catherine Snow is a public health researcher from the University of Melbourne. We are almost out of time. Dr. Linden, you got a big uh, day planned? Today, uh, no, just going to dawdle home on my bike and enjoy the sunshine. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Laurie, do you need to get to the airport or are you, you going for a run? No, well, I'm going to go for a run, and then Australian grants are due next week. Oh, they are. Yeah, ARC they? grants are due. Yeah, so, yeah, so this is the last smile work. that we will see from you <laughs> for another week. <laughs> got to do a bit of work. Don't you have minions? To, someone like I you? Wrote I my you own have, oh, you write your own grants? No, I, I don't you actually. Um, yeah, I'm doing it with with a with a postdoc of mine. Oh, you got a minion. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thanks so much, Dr. Laura. Liv's been doing a Twitter feed, folks. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening again to Einstein and Gogo. Remember that great quote uh, from Dr. Linden that rain is a nasty bastard to model. I think there's something in that for all of us. Uh, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.